This is Matthew 18, or Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Good morning. Everybody okay? Okay. I'm glad to see you today. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is a very famous Bible story, isn't it? Even if you aren't a Christian or haven't been around the Bible much, you've probably heard this story. In the story, the announcement of Mary's pregnancy and then the event of Jesus's birth, it interrupts and disrupts everything in the life of Joseph. And everything in the life of Mary, the coming of Jesus at Christmas time, at Advent, is actually meant to do that for anyone who encounters him. Um, it's meant to be disruptive, Jesus' coming is. It's meant to be an interruption in our otherwise very preoccupied lives. That's the intent. But it often doesn't do that for us. I wonder if it's doing that for you this Christmas season. And... and It often doesn't do that for us at all. That's why this is actually, I think, one of the most dangerous passages in the entire Bible. It's a dangerous passage because it's a passage that's intended to disrupt us, but it almost never does, if we're being honest, because it is so familiar. It's so familiar to us. And I got to tell you, I I struggled with that all week myself. Uh, I read these verses So many times this week preparing to teach on them and I just flew through them as if it's the most normal thing in the world to read about an angel saying to a Jewish man in about 4 AD in a dream that his 14 year old fiance has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that the little boy is going to grow up to be the savior of the world. I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and because I've been around this story, like some of you have, my entire life, it just didn't really hit me, to be totally honest with you. And my guess is that's how a lot of you heard the story this morning as it was read. It was ordinary. It was familiar to you. We need a disruption. We need the disruption of Christmas. Jesus, the son of God, taking on humanity is definitely on the top five list of the most startling things our world has ever seen. It was and is highly disruptive. And even in his birth, each one of us are are being asked to face two realities, 
you're being asked to face two realities this morning. The reality of who Jesus is and the reality of what we are to do in response. And that's what I would like us to think about together for a few minutes today. We've begun this journey, which is going to take us all the way through the next year, through Matthew's gospel. And last week, Matthew introduced us to who Jesus Christ is. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the first verse in the whole New Testament says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we looked then at, at the family tree of Jesus. And we saw that it's a, an ancient way, a genealogy, of telling people who you are. And we saw that even in the giving of his ancestry, Matthew is beginning to tell us about Jesus' mission. And he's also telling us about his purpose in writing this gospel. He said, Jesus came to give grace to the sinful. He came to prove that God keeps faith. And Jesus came to fulfill everything that had been promised. And so now, in these verses, Matthew moves into the narrative in earnest. And he tells us here about the virgin birth of Jesus and the naming of Jesus. And he does so from the perspective of Joseph. That's one of the interesting things about the four Gospels. The Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Mary. And the Gospel of Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Joseph. And there are two striking purposes in these verses, as I just mentioned. First, for us to see who Jesus is. That's the first purpose. And second... For us, through Joseph in particular, to see how we should respond. So that can be our outline today. Very simple. Two points. Who Jesus is and what Joseph does. Who Jesus is, what Joseph does. So first, let's look at who Jesus is according to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 1. Uh, Unquestionably, the main point Matthew wants to make is that in the conception and in the birth of Jesus, we already begin to get a view of who he is. And I want to go to these middle verses first and to enter into Joseph's dream. And then we'll get back to the beginning and the end to Joseph and his response later. So Joseph, verse 20, he's been considering these things, Matthew tells us, that he's learned about his fiance, and he goes to sleep. And an angel appears to him and speaks to him via a dream. Now, you probably don't need me as a pastor to tell you that anytime an angel appears in the Bible and starts speaking to people in the dream, what he's about to say is important. Angels are primarily messengers. And when an angel shows up in a miraculous way like this, it's an important message. And here's what the angel says. Look with me, verse 20. Joseph says the angel, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says that this fulfills a prophecy that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us there in verse 23. So, three things I want to show you real quickly about what these verses tell us about who Jesus is. Three things. First, these verses tell us that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's what we confess 
virtually every week in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Look in verse 20. That phrase, from the Holy Spirit. That phrase, from the blank, is used seven times in this one chapter. We saw last week in the genealogy, it's used four times. Each woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. For example, in verse 3, you can see Tamar there. That word is used. He says in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, from or by Tamar. It's the same linguistic construction. It's used four times in the genealogy. It's used once of Mary herself. And it's used twice in verse 18 and verse 20 now of the Holy Spirit. It's like Matthew is saying, okay, stick with me. Here's what Matthew's saying. If you think it's eccentric for Jesus to have people born in his family lineage by people like Tamar and Rahab, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus was born of or from the Holy Spirit. Matthew's teaching that the genesis of Jesus's human life is from the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who makes Jesus a real human person inside of Mary. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, tells us that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she became pregnant with Jesus. Now, that word that Luke uses, overshadowed, is the same word that the Greek version of the Old Testament uses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The first thing we read about the Holy Spirit in the Bible is in Genesis 1-2, where it says, the Holy Spirit hovered or overshadowed the face of the formless deep that was the world God was going to make. That word, hovered or overshadowed, is the same word used of what the Holy Spirit now does over Mary's belly. What's the point? Just as the Holy Spirit formed and shaped the first creation of the world, so Matthew and Luke and the whole gospel tells us that now the Spirit is forming and shaping the agent of the new creation of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary is intended to highlight God's sovereign initiative in acting to rescue us. Listen, this should be disruptive to us. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves, to rescue ourselves, or to save ourselves. It takes something as crazy as God putting skin on via the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus for us to be delivered out of our bondage to sin. God enters the story himself through the spirit. That's the first thing we learn about who Jesus is. The second thing we learn comes in the fact that, that Joseph and Mary, did you notice this? They're not given the chance to choose a name for their own child. That's normally something parents are giving, given the chance to, but, but not the case here. Rather, God tells Joseph through the angel, you will call his name, verse 21, Jesus. And then he tells us why, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, there's a play on words here. 
that's hard to pick up on in the translation into English. The name Jesus, that's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. And Yeshua is a compound word in Hebrew. Ye is short for Yahweh, God's name. And Shua is the Hebrew verb for to save. So Yeshua means God saves. God saves. The Lord saves. And so the play on words is this. You shall call his name God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Do you see what Matthew says right away? He says the biggest problem that Jesus came to resolve, the biggest issue that any of us have is our issue of sin. That's what the scripture says everywhere that we need saving from more than anything else. We've been doing a Christianity Explored class the last few weeks on Sunday mornings, and it's always a joy to teach and guide people through Mark's gospel. And one of the stories that we focus on in Christianity Explored is a story in Mark chapter 2. You might be familiar with the story. There's four men who have a friend who is a paralyzed man. And these men hear that Jesus is teaching in a home in their community. And so they take this man and put him on a mat and they walk him to the house. But the house is jam-packed and they can't get entrance into the house to lay their paralyzed friend before Jesus. And so they take him up on the roof and they dig a hole through the thatched roof and they lower him down on a mat and place him in front of Jesus, hoping that Jesus will heal his paralysis. And Jesus, in Mark 2, sees this man and what he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Now put yourself in that story. That would have been, admit it, a little bit of a weird letdown. You've done all this work to have your buddy who can't walk get in front of Jesus and you finally get him in front of this miracle working rabbi and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they would have been like, what? We hope would, you know, help him walk again. And Jesus very intentionally says, this man's main problem is not that he can't walk. His main problem is that he is a sinner in need of forgiveness. We see that already in the birth of Jesus. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And that's precisely what only Jesus can deliver us from, our own sin problem. As we go through Matthew, we'll learn how he does it. So we see that The Holy Spirit conceives baby Jesus, that his name Jesus means he will deliver people from sin. The last thing we learn about who Jesus is comes in this title that he's given. Did you notice it? Matthew quotes a verse from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14, which was a prophecy given 700 years earlier to an Israelite king named Ahaz. And in the verse... A title is used. The word there in verse 23 is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is saying that title is now to be given to this baby, Jesus. And it tells us something really profound, something I really hope you'll hear and take in this morning about who Jesus is, about who God is. Listen, God is the with us God. He is the with us God. He proves that in Jesus. Think about it with me. For an Israelite, for a Jewish person, then and now, by the way, God was supremely 
the above us God. He is high and exalted. He is seated on his throne. He dwells in unapproachable lights. But the glory and the miracle of what the New Testament reveals is that the great above us God becomes the with us God in Jesus. And listen, that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion on planet Earth, especially from the other great monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism. For a Muslim, for example, for a Muslim, Allah is by definition above us. Uh, He often, Allah does, he often sends, he will send maybe an angel or he will send a prophet, but he is far too removed and far too holy to come. For Allah to associate with earth or with humanity is in Islam to blaspheme, to disregard his glory. But Christianity is different. Our God is so great that he can come down. And his love is so entire, his love is so vast that he wants to come down. The gospel teaches that God not only sends, God comes to us. He literally becomes one of us. He literally belittles himself to accommodate himself to us. That's the mystery of the wonder of the incarnation. God in Jesus is with us. I read a story this week um, about a a woman named Mary Daniel, who during COVID was visiting her husband who has um, mental issues, uh, mental degenerative issues. And um, she would visit him every night after he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's in in the senior care facility where he lived in Jacksonville, Florida. But when COVID hit, as we all remember, they, they locked down the facility and restricted visitors as a way of preventing the spread of COVID to vulnerable patients. And uh, she was unable to see her husband for 114 days in a row after being used to seeing him and caring for him every single day. And of course, Mary worried about her husband spending so much time alone. And she said in the article I read that she was desperate to find another way to stay connected with him. She's quoted as saying, we have separated these folks to save them, but the isolation will absolutely kill them, especially dementia patients. They need interaction. They need to be touched so that they can grow instead of just withering away. She goes on in the story to say that out of the blue, two weeks ago, after 114 days without seeing her husband, the corporate office of his memory care center called Mary and offered her a job, a part-time job as a dishwasher in the healthcare facility in which her husband lived. She took the job and began to work washing dishes and was able to again visit her husband every day. She's quoted as saying that her husband now again feels love because she is with him every step of the way. God is with us. He wants us to feel and know that. Isn't it a wonder that God is Emmanuel? One of our most common struggles is to think that God doesn't understand us. Do you think that sometimes? 
Do you ever wonder if God really cares? Do we ever believe God doesn't see me at all? Life often does feel that way, doesn't it? But the message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation, pierces through with the light of truth. Because he is Emmanuel, there is nothing you can experience that God does not understand. There's nothing you can experience that God has not also experienced. That's the depth of his compassion for you. Where do you find yourselves today? Are you depressed? Christmas often brings that out, doesn't it? Are you sad? Jesus has felt that. He knows what it's like. Have you been hurt? Traumatized by people close to you, by the people who were supposed to care for you? Jesus has experienced that too. Do you feel like no one understands you, that you're all by yourself? Jesus deeply knows what that is like. He is God with us in all of our hurt and suffering and isolation and pain. And because he is always with us in these moments, we can trust him with our hurts. We can trust him with our griefs. We can go to him and know he understands. He is the empathetic God. He's not removed. He's close by. What a gift of love that God comes to us and dwells with us and cares for us. That's who Jesus is. Second thing, and more briefly, what Joseph does. You know, if we can take this story and if we can put ourselves in Joseph's place, I think there's a lot we can learn. Let's go there with him, okay? Joseph, according to Matthew, in verse 19, is a just man. He's a righteous man. He's a very good man. That means he cared about obeying God's law. He had devoted his life to loving God and to loving his neighbor. And when this angel comes to him, Joseph, of course, already knows Mary is pregnant. Um, How did he find out? Well, Mary almost certainly would have told him, put yourself in Joseph's place. He's hanging out one evening and his teenage fiance comes and says, Joseph, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What do you want to hear first? You know, the good news or the bad news? And uh, I have some bad news. Um, the bad news is I'm pregnant, even though we're not married yet. Uh, the good news is I haven't been with anybody else. I promise. And, and, and an angel came to me and said, Hail Mary, Mother of Grace, right? Um, I'm going to have a miracle baby. And all generations are going to call me blessed. I know that's never happened before, ever, like literally ever in the history of the universe, but it's going to happen to me. Imagine being Joseph and hearing that. Put yourself in his shoes. That would have been a moment of massive disintegration for him, wouldn't it have? Have you ever received news that just was crushing to you? Uh, Have you ever gotten information that you didn't know what to do with and that was so personally devastating and harmful that you knew it was going to change the course of the rest of your life? One of my best friends this week uh, received news like that. He was let in on on a family secret about his parents that, that had been hidden from him. He's 51 years old, by the way, that had been hidden from him for 25 years. 
And because he's about to move away from his family across the country, his parents told him about this secret. And it was just devastating. It was crushing. It disintegrated him. That's the place Joseph would have found himself. But he's a just man, which means he's going to obey God's law and divorce Mary. That's what God's law taught. But it also tells us, the Matthew text, that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He's also a merciful man. And so, verse 20, he considers it for a while, and he resolves to divorce her quietly, so as not to to disobey God, but also so as not to ruin Mary's reputation in life. So Joseph's a solid dude. He's a good guy. He's heard this devastating news, and he's doing the best he can after a lot of thought to make the right choice that's going to care for Mary well, but also is going to honor a God, his God. And then in this dream, the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Did you catch that? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Put yourself there. Why would Joseph be afraid? Well, certainly he would be afraid uh, of offending God, of violating God's law. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. Joseph would have been afraid of losing his reputation as a just man, as a righteous man. He would be afraid, and understandably so, right, of what everyone would think about him. Joseph knew about his own doubts when Mary told him about the angel. There's no way people in his town were going to believe an angel came to a poor couple in an obscure village and caused the conception of a child in the body of a teenage virgin girl. He knew that if he married her, his friends would never accept his account of what happened. No way. He would not be invited to their homes. He would not be given their business. He would never again be admired or respected as a lover of God's law, which was everything for a Jewish man in the first century. Listen, if Joseph committed himself to this baby, he would do so only with enormous sacrifice. His whole reputation would have been trashed. But Joseph does what the angel commanded. In verse 24, we read, he took Mary home to be his wife. That's the legal step. He publicly claimed her as his bride, even though he didn't consummate the marriage until the child was born. Notice Matthew is very explicit to draw that out in verse 25. Even though he knew she was pregnant and he wasn't the human father, he still took Mary as his wife legally. But then, verse 25, he also named the baby. He named the baby what the angel had commanded him to name the baby. And that is very significant. That is Joseph publicly adopting Jesus as his son and publicly bringing Jesus into the line of David. Joseph is deliberately tying his destiny to the lives of this woman and this child who would definitely have stained reputations. What's the point? God interrupts Joseph's life, and it cost Joseph to obey. But in faith, he obeyed anyway. One quick note. One quick note to show just how much Joseph risked on what God was doing here. In another gospel, Gospel of Mark, 
chapter 6, when Jesus has grown and has begun his public ministry, he returns to Nazareth, which is the town he grew up in. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Joseph, by the way, would have been dead by this point. But when Jesus shows up in Nazareth, here's what people say. Isn't this the son of Mary? And aren't these his brothers? And then they name four of Jesus' brothers. Now, think about this. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph was dead by then almost certainly. But even in that culture, if the father had died, a man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father. Jesus would have been known as Jesus bar Joseph. But they call him here Jesus the son of Mary. To refer to a man in first century Israel as the son of only the mother was the equivalent of calling someone today a son of a you-know-what. It was a harsh, derogatory expression. I think Mark 6 reflects that even decades later, Joseph's reputation has still not recovered from his marriage, even after he's died. And as an aside, another aside, an aside to an aside, Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus, as a man, was so drawn to the destitute, to those who had soiled reputations. He knew what it was like to be in a family like that. His dad was like that. I want us to take this in. Jesus' entrance into our lives is a disruption. If you have taken Jesus into your life, but there's been no disruption, that's unusual and strange. And it may not make things easier for you, but harder. And I think the question that this text presses upon us is, are we willing to deliberately tie our destinies and to tie our reputations to this scandalous little baby and his scandalous teenage mom? That's one of the questions God asks of us at Christmas. Christmas is not meant to be ordinary. It's about how God interrupts our considerations of our life and asks us to hear him and to obey him and to follow him, no matter the cost, like Joseph did. And millions of people since then, along with some of you in this room, have given up reputation and possessions and careers and some people their very lives to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, because he is the one who came to save, it's all worth it. In fact, it's only the only decision that makes any sense. Why gain a whole world, Jesus says, and lose our souls? You can take the world, Joseph says, give me Jesus. That's the choice he made in faith. Trusting God's word that Jesus was worth losing reputation for. That Jesus was who God had promised. Do we trust God? Do we trust God at his word enough to allow him to disrupt and interrupt with his grace and love? To allow him to cause things in our lives that we can't anticipate when we listen to him and trust him as Jesus' father and our ancestor in Christ, Joseph, did. This text shows us who Jesus is. He's the savior. He's God with us. It also shows us how to respond through Joseph's act to listen to God's word and obey even when it was costly because we know that Jesus is worth it. This Christmas, by God's grace, may we do the same. Let's pray.